If you would please open your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 8. You're using the Pew Bible that's found on 956, page 956. So we are back now after about five or six week break in 1 Corinthians. But it's going to be short-lived because, Lord willing, next week we will be having an ordination service. And I'm going to preach an ordination sermon from Ben Strickland's favorite book. Anyone know what Ben Strickland's favorite book in the Bible is? The book of Nehemiah. So this is the first time that I've preached from Nehemiah. So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 uh, for our ordination service. Again, Lord willing, praying that I don't get COVID and I will be able to hear to preach that sermon. But just to recap 1 Corinthians, what we're looking at. Remember, this book was written to a rather worldly church, uh, a, a, a culture that was very much like our own culture. The city of Corinth, I had mentioned many times, was prosperous, pluralistic, and promiscuous. And many of the problems that were facing the Corinthians are problems that are facing our church today. Many of the rebukes that Paul has given to the Corinthians are rebukes that could be given to the 21st century American church. And some of the problems that are addressed so far was disunity, disunity stemming from pride. You know, one followed Paul, one followed Apollos, one followed Cephas, one said they followed Christ. There was sexual immorality, or actually, more accurately, the church's toleration of sexual immorality, and sexual immorality that was not even tolerated by the pagans, showing the need for church discipline. They had lawsuits among believers. Instead of going to the church, they went to pagans to settle disputes between believers. There was misunderstanding about marriage and and singleness. And the next section that we're going to start today in chapter 7, this actually goes through through the end of chapter 10, actually ends in, in chapter 11, verse 1. And this deals with this larger issue of idolatry, and specifically meat sacrificed to idols, and really how to lovingly interact with, with different brothers and sisters who have different understandings and really different levels of sanctification. And I'm going to briefly you know, address the entire three chapters of this section so we can understand Uh, Paul's argument on this topic, but we're going to focus mainly on chapter 8 today. And one other thing, just to recap, and I've mentioned this when we were going through and looking at chapter 7, talking about marriage and, and, and singleness, that Paul was responding to another letter, to questions that came to him from the from the Corinthians. And, and some of the things that we see here, if you look in the ESV, you'll actually see it in quotations, like in verses 1 and, and verse 4, and I even believe verse 8 should be in quotations, And what this is showing, this is not Paul's opinions. These are Paul uh, quoting the the, uh, Corinthians' opinion or the Corinthians' slogans. And and it's important for us to understand that because that affects the way we understand and interpret the passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. 
but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if this conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you speak to us. Speak to us through your word. Father, I pray that we will hear from you. I pray, Father, that I will speak your word. Give me uh, your clarity. Give me your words. Give me your insights and the power of your Holy Spirit. And give us understanding that we will not just look at these words, but we will have an encounter with you. And that we will be changed. We will be edified through this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in graduate school, one of my professors told a joke, and he said that a man in a balloon flies over a college campus, and he sees a person on the ground, he yells at a man on the ground, he goes, hey, you, down there, where am I? And the man on the ground replies, you are in a balloon. To which the man in the balloon replies, replies, you must be an engineering student. He goes, yes, how did you know? He goes, because what you said is absolutely true and absolutely useless. And that was a jab at us engineering students who, who had a lot of accurate book knowledge, but not very much practical knowledge, not much useful knowledge. And, and we, we know this. We know people who have just enough knowledge to be dangerous, just enough knowledge to be conceited, to think they know something when they're really not very useful. And I think the same thing could be said about the knowledge that the Corinthians, to whom Paul is addressing, had. Paul says in verse 1 that their knowledge is knowledge that puffs up, but love builds up. And I think verse 1 is often misapplied. It's often a a criticism of having any knowledge, of of studying, of uh, against uh, theology, about going deep in theology, understanding the things of God, being precise in our language when discussing God. I don't think that's it at all. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a a false dichotomy that we do. We we pit knowledge against love, thinking that, you know, I have knowledge, you have love, or you have knowledge and and I have love. But I think they're inseparably linked, knowledge and love. I mean, think about it. How can you love God if you don't know him? The Apostle John says in his epistle, he says, God is the light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, which is ignorance of God, ignorance of the things of God, it says we lie and we do not practice the truth. Conversely, if we truly know God, if we have saving knowledge of God, it will naturally change us. It will naturally lead us to love both God and love others. Again, the Apostle John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So don't let anyone ever try to tell you that there is a wedge between godly knowledge and love. They are inseparably connected. Theological knowledge that does not lead to humility and and love for God and love for others, even if it may be technically correct on some small point, 
It misses the main point of godly knowledge. And love. Love that is not based on knowledge. Knowledge of who God is. Knowledge of ourselves. Is not true godly love. It is really a self-delusion. And the Corinthians addressed here in chapter 8. They had an incomplete, a a puffed-up knowledge which may have been technically correct on one point, but it was like that engineering student who, who was absolutely true and absolutely useless. See, the Corinthians knew just enough to be dangerous. And Paul says in, in verse 2, he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. In other words, Paul is saying, If your knowledge leads to pride, you do not know as you should. And then he gives them the correction in verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, a heart that loves God is evidence that the person not only knows God, but more importantly, is known by God. Or in other words, it's evidence that the person has been converted. And the person that is converted and loves God will seek to know God better. It is natural. My friends, if you have no interest in knowing God better, no interest in studying his word, no interest in learning more about him, no interest in gathering gathering together with other believers to worship him. I have to question, do you really know God? Do you really love God? Are you really converted? In verses 1 through 3 in this chapter, they lay out the principle. Basically, the principle is incomplete knowledge leads to pride. It leads, it puffs us up. But true knowledge, true godly knowledge, naturally leads to love and does not puff us up, but actually builds others up. And this principle is then applied to the the rest of this chapter with respect to the question here. And the question is food sacrificed to idols. Now we need to have a a little background about this problem of food sacrificed to idols because it's not a problem that we have today, obviously. Corinth was a pagan city and it was filled with pagan temples and shrines and the worshipers of these false deities, they would offer food to these shrines, uh, to these idols. And of course, the idols are not alive. They're not going to eat the food. So they had to do something with the food. They didn't want it to go to waste. So sometimes they would eat it themselves, the sacrificers. But more often what they would do is they would sell the food in the marketplace. And these idols were ubiquitous. They were all over Corinth. You couldn't get away from them. And so was the food that was sacrificed to the idols. Now, the Corinthians that Paul was addressing, the ones who had this knowledge, this knowledge that puffs up, they were eating this food offered to idols. They wanted to eat this food offered to idols. And their knowledge, their knowledge said that knowingly eating this food was perfectly okay. It was a perfectly acceptable thing to do. And we're going to look specifically at the logic they have. But what they're doing here really is something very dangerous. And sadly, it's something that we all do often. What they're doing is they're coming up with a theological justification to do what they already wanted to do in the first place. They wanted to eat this food. So instead of going to scripture, instead of praying and asking, what is the godly thing to do? What does the Lord want me to do in this situation? They're looking for a loophole. They're looking for a way to do the thing they already wanted to do. And what they're doing is they're actually sinning. They were doing something that they should not have done, and that is knowingly eat food that's sacrificed to idols. And here's an important part that's easy to miss. And And truthfully, I missed this too. If we look just at this chapter, and, and, and again, my initial sermon was going to be completely different. And it wasn't until I studied the entire argument in the three chapters and, 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 and looked into it and looked in some commentaries that I misunderstood what Paul was saying here about the, the, his position on, on meat sacrifice to idols. 
See, in this chapter, Paul is, what he's doing, he's following the Corinthian argument. It may appear that Paul is, is seeing that eating food sacrificed to idol is no big deal. It's a, it's a neutral matter. And that the problem really is that unless it goes against conscience. Basically, I thought this was the same argument that we see in, in Romans 14. And in Romans 14, you may remember, this is where Paul is talking about the weak and the strong Christians. And the, and the strong Christians will eat any food. The weak Christians will eat only vegetables. And in this case, he's truly talking about a neutral uh, matter. He's not talking about food sacrificed to idols. But food sacrificed to idols is not a neutral matter. See, the church has already decided that. And that's why I asked Nathan to read from the Jerusalem Council, this letter that we heard. This has already been decided by the church. And Acts chapter 15, verses 28 to 29 says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. The church has spoken. It couldn't be any clearer in that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this issue has been solved. Knowingly eating food sacrificed to idols is not an option for Christians. And we know that Paul himself was fiercely opposed to any form of idolatry. In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens and he is deeply troubled. His spirit is provoked when he sees the sights of all the idols in the city. And in chapter 10 of this letter, Paul says that, yes, we know that an idol is nothing. But when the pagans sacrifice to idols, they're actually sacrificing to demons. Not to God, but to demons. And in in 10.21, Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And we're going to flesh this out more when we get to chapter 10, obviously. But for now, what we need to understand is this is not a neutral issue. This is, this is sinful, and the knowledgeable ones were actually the ones who were sinning, and the ones that are called weak were actually the ones who were, who were right in this situation. And again, we want to mention this because <clears throat> it's easy to think that this is a neutral issue. And in verses uh, 4 through 6, Paul is giving the Corinthians' argument. That's basically what we're seeing, and that's why we see these quotations. We see the quotations in, in, in verse 4. It says, in verse 4, it says, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols... We know that, and here's the quotations, an idol has no real existence. And that, again, quotations, there is no God but one. <clears throat> so an idol has no real existence, and that there's no God but one. This was the Corinthian knowledge that they have. This was their justification for eating food sacrificed to idols. And really, who can argue with the statement? These statements are correct. But these correct statements have been misapplied by the Corinthians. They don't fully address the situation. The correct statement does not naturally lead to the conclusion they are drawing. And don't we see this all the time? Don't we see this all the time? Think about debates or discussions that you may have had with others, even believers or, or unbelievers. People might disagree with something you said, but instead of directly addressing the thing you've said and showing why it's either logically inconsistent or factually wrong, what do they do? They, they, they'll say a statement that is obviously true, true by definition, and they think that that is what has proved you wrong. And they point to that out, and they think that they've made this, this argument. And again, we see this all the time. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were using these true statements, but they were using them in a wrong way, in a wrong way to justify a wrong conclusion, a sinful action that they already wanted to do in the first place. They were using these to justify what they already wanted to do in the first place. 
And Paul actually addresses the, the, the first true statement about the idol having no real existence in this passage that I referenced in, in chapter 10. He says, yes, an idol is not real, but the demons behind the idol are real. And these real demons are dangerous. <clears throat> but it's the second statement that Paul addresses here in chapter 8. And the statement is, there is no God but one. And this statement should sound vaguely familiar to something we had heard this morning. We heard this both in our confession, but also in our Old Testament reading from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> and the specific section in Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 4, is known as the Shema, which is from the Hebrew word, which means here. And, Hebrew, and, and uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. An absolutely true statement. Any monotheist, not just a Christian, but a, a Jew, a Muslim, would not deny this statement. But do you remember the, the very next verse after the Shema in verse 5? It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And what Paul does is he masterfully takes the Corinthians' knowledge, a knowledge that has puffed them up, and he connects it with love, a love that will build others up. <clears throat> See, by using this knowledge, this correct knowledge, but using this knowledge incorrectly to justify eating in, a, in an idol's temple, as we see in verse 10, some of the weaker Christians, something that they would never dare to do, what it does is it gives these supposedly knowledgeable Christians a sense of superiority. It puffs them up. Their knowledge fails the love test. It leads to pride, not love. It does not build others up. And what Paul does is he masterfully, basically sets them up and then he pivots by applying the love test to their conclusion. And their conclusion is that it's perfectly okay to eat food that is sacrificed to idols. And we see this in verse 7 by bringing up those who do not have this knowledge. So look at verse 7. It says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So, first of all, when Paul says that not all possess this knowledge, he's not speaking of these obviously true statements in, in verse 4. These brothers did not think that they were rival gods. They were aware of the Shema. They were Christians. They were monotheists. When Paul says that they did not have knowledge, what he means is that they didn't buy into the argument, the argument that, that justified eating food offered to idols. An argument that, again, Paul himself would have also rejected. In this section, in verses 7 through 13, it basically applies the love test to Paul's conclusion. That, or I should say to the Corinthians' conclusion that it's perfectly acceptable to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he's showing that this conclusion fails the love test. Now, again, some more background. The reality for the church in Corinth is that there were many people in the church who were deeply steeped in idolatry. Before, before they came to Christ, they were, they were in bondage to this idolatry. They were in bondage to the demons behind the idols. And a demon is a cruel taskmaster. And many of the, the Corinthians be, believers had firsthand experience with this cruelty and, and the abuse until they were set free by Christ. Until the Holy Spirit changed their hearts by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were born again when they became new creations in Christ. And then everything changed for them. 
And these new believers, they, they weren't theologians. They, they were not able to eloquently articulate with precision all the aspects of this new faith. But they knew Christ. They loved Christ. They gave themselves to Christ. And they certainly did not want to go back to the bondage of the, the worthless idols all around them. They, they didn't know much but they knew that there was no fellowship between dark and light. There was no fellowship between Christ and idols, between Christ and demons. However, if these new Christians, these weaker brothers, as they were referred to, if they happened to see one of their knowledgeable brothers, one of the ones they looked up to, and they may even have been leaders in the church, if they saw these brothers nonchalantly eating in a pagan temple, it would really confuse them. It would mess them up. And they would, they would say, well, this certainly this seems wrong to me. I don't feel right about it. But if I see this person is so much more knowledgeable than me doing it, then it must be okay. And not only would this example cause these, these new believers to sin, and, and this is bad enough. I mean, Jesus, what, what does Jesus say about you know, one of those little ones that if you cause, you know, those little ones who believe in me, if you cause them to sin? Jesus says it's better for a millstone to be tied around your, your neck and you thrown out into the sea. This is a big deal, but it's even worse than them. See, not only is it leading them to sin, it's causing them to sin against their conscience. It's training these, these, these Christians to quench the Holy Spirit's testimony, to ignore the Spirit's leading through their conscience. It would wound their conscience. It would harden their conscience. And their conscience should be tender. It should be open to the Spirit's leading. And my friends, this is deadly. This is deadly. We never, we never want to harden our hearts against the Lord's leading. This is what happened to Pharaoh. This is what happened. This is what's described in that terrible passage in Romans 1, where it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, this deadening of their conscience they drove them right back into the bondage of idolatry from which they had been delivered. And verse 8, I believe, also should be in quotes, because I see this as, as the response of the, the knowledgeable and puffed-up Corinthians. And verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. See, I think they're attempting to minimize the offense. Now, Paul here could have given them Acts 15. He could have said, here's a letter and told him that actually you are worse off. But what he does is he continues to pursue this love argument, this love test, which Paul is responding to. And we see this in verse 9. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And he says that, that even if it doesn't really matter, it, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, that's not the issue. The issue is what is it doing to someone else? Is it a stumbling block to someone else? Is it building someone else up? And this here is the same argument that we see in Romans 14. But again, in Romans 14, it's a neutral issue. It's not a neutral issue here. And verse 10 describes the situation that would cause the brother to stumble. In verse 10, it says, If anyone, or anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So this example that's set by these more knowledgeable brothers, what it actually does is it causes the weaker brother to follow in his sin and violate his own conscience. 
And verse 11 says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And it really can't be overemphasized the wickedness of what is happening, the, the complete lack of love that is being shown to this weaker brother. Because it's leading this brother to neglect the leading of his conscience and ba- basically thus to harden his heart. And as we saw, this is deadly. And this has the potential to destroy the brother by hardening his heart. Now, we, we know that this, from our, from our theological knowledge, we know that this cannot happen. We know that our actions cannot destroy someone who is actually a brother, someone who is actually in Christ, someone for whom Christ actually died for. And why do we know that? Because a brother, a true believer, a person for whom Christ has died, is eternally secure. Because his security is not contingent on the foolishness of the knowledgeable. It's it's not even contingent on his own foolishness. He is secure in Christ. Christ himself is the security for the believer. But the real harm of this foolish action and this attitude of the knowledgeable, I think, is seen in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. See, the real sin here is against Christ. The lack of love that is shown, the the failure to build up the fellow believers, the the spiritual pride and and twisting of of Scripture to serve their uh, their own interests. All of this brings dishonor on the name of Christ. All of this is a sin against Christ himself. And my friends, the stakes are this high. And this is why Paul makes this, this bold declaration in verse 13 to give up even his legitimate rights. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And Paul is saying that, that he is willing to give up even his legitimate rights for the sake of his brothers. And here is Paul showing that, that it's not a matter, uh, it, it's, it's a matter of the heart, really, not, not of the head. A converted person, a person who is known by Christ, will be driven by a love for Christ and a love for his fellow believers. And he will give up whatever personal comfort for the good of his brothers. And we'll see this more in chapter 9. Actually, Paul's going to give, use himself as an example. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, in, in two weeks. But the question is, what does this mean for us? This is all nice, interesting history. You know, None of us are being tempted. I don't think any of us are tempted to eat food sacrificed to idols. So what do we see here? How do we apply this to us? Is there any way we can, we can, we can extract principles that apply to us? And I think there's three, and I'm going to make three brief applications. The first thing I think we see here is the danger, the ever-present danger of idolatry. Idolatry is just as dangerous today as it was during Paul's day. Now, of course, it looks different. Again, very few of us worship statues, although some do. But all of us, all of us are tempted to idolatry. And idolatry in its most basic form is to look at anything in this created world or any person in this created world to provide for us that which only God can provide. Basically, idolatry is to look for anything in this world to provide for us that which only God can provide. And oftentimes, the things that we make idols out of are good things, right? Of course, they're good things. We're not going to idolize something that's bad and inherently bad. And these things, if they are used in accordance with God's will, these things are gifts for our enjoyment. And we talked a little bit about this in in Sunday school this morning. These are things that are given to us by God for our enjoyment and through which we can glorify God if they are used in their right way, in the right way that God has told us. 
But the problem is, and Tim Keller says this very clearly, he says, the problem with idolatry is it takes these good things and it makes them ultimate things. It takes a good thing and it makes them ultimate things. We look at these good things to provide for us that which only God can provide. In our sermon last week, I mentioned that many have made idols out of modern medicine. We have looked to vaccines or vitamins or, or masks. This is our security. And when these idols fail, and they always fail, we have a crisis of faith. Other idols are our jobs, our bank accounts, our skills, our knowledge, our families, our relationships, our husbands, our wives, our church membership, our nationality. And every one of these things are good things, but they can never, they can never be for us ultimate things. Because we try to do it, they will fail us. And the worst thing is, if you tempt to take one of these good things and elevate it to a ultimate thing, a job, a relationship, anything, what you will do is you will destroy it. You will destroy the relationship. The fastest way to ruin a marriage is to look to your husband or look to your wife to give you what only God can provide. They can't do it. The relationship can't do it. It will destroy the relationship. But not only do we, are we naturally tempted, tempted to personal idolatry, there are also corporate idols. There are collective idols. There are cultural idols. And these are the idols to which our culture corporately worships. And these are where there is a tremendous pressure exerted on us by the culture to participate in this type of idolatry. And it's here, it's here that we experience the same kind of pressure that was exerted on the Corinthians to eat food sacrificed to idols. See, this, this food was everywhere. In a real sense, if you wanted to participate in communal life in Corinth, you risked eating food, knowingly eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And not participating in this would be noticed. The Christians would certainly have stood out, and they would have suffered as a result. If they were a merchant, their business would suffer. It could have a direct impact on their livelihoods. And this is why they didn't want it to be a problem. They wanted it to be okay to, to uh, eat food sacrificed to idols. This is why they, they didn't want to see what God really said. They wanted to find the loophole to justify what they wanted to do. And my friends, we have the same pressures on us today especially those of us in the business world. I've talked to some of you, and I know the, how much wokeness is, is, is uh, pushed in the corporate culture. There is, the, there is so much pressure to buy into the political ideologies that are things that I spoke about yesterday, ideologies that are promoted by, by people who hate God. There is so much pressure on us. And our application here is to resist the pressure. And to understand, to understand this pressure, to recognize this pressure, and to understand just how dangerous it is to our Christian witness, to understand how dangerous it is to our spiritual health, and to stand against the pressure, and to understand that standing against the pressure will come at a cost. It'll come at a cultural cost, a societal cost, a temporal cost. And we must be resigned to this fact. We must be resigned that it's going to cost because we try to live in both worlds, we try to balance it, it's going to drive us crazy. And what's going to happen is we are going to be in danger of something even greater. And, and that, is, that is, is a danger that we will succumb to something even greater, which is our second application that we see in this text. And the second application is the danger is we will look to Scripture to justify what we already want to do. That's our second application. We will look to Scripture to justify what we already want to do, rather than looking to Scripture to determine what God's will is for us. 
what, what God is telling us. And my friends, we are all in danger. We are all tempted to do this. We started since the time of the apostles. In the time of the apostles, the church felt pressure to compromise the clear teaching of Scripture to better fit in. Better fit in with the temptations of the world, the temptations of the flesh, the temptations of the devil, all of which oppose God, all of which oppose his word. In the days of the apostles, there was pressure from the Judaizers, and I know we've talked about this. And those were said that in, in order to be Christian, Gentiles must keep all the Jewish ceremonial laws. And this pressure was so great that even the apostle Peter himself was deceived on this issue and was publicly rebuked by the Apostle Paul. So we see this today. We see this today in, in many evangelical churches where, where pastors, when they're preaching, they will, they will decide the message that they want to preach and they'll search through the Bibles to find something that's close and use that as the passage. And it's really just a launching point for what they want to preach. And even, even I, when I came to this passage, I had a sermon that I wanted to preach. I had a superficial understanding of, of this passage and, and really what I, what I did is I confused it with Romans 14. So I intended to, to preach a Romans 14 sermon and, and about strong and weak Christians and apply it to current events facing the church. And I know now if I would have done that, I would have completely missed the point of this passage. See, one of the things that, that is, is great about exegetical preaching is its safeguard against this danger. See, in exegetical preaching, I really can't preach my own ideas. Every point must come directly from the text. And this is why the first thing I say when I get up here is open your Bibles. Have your Bibles open. And I point you to, to the text. And that's also why I reread the text. You may wonder, I read the whole text, and then I go through verse by verse reading it again. And the reason I do that is I want you to see that every point comes from that text. I reread it, and I ask you to follow along your Bible. And this keeps me honest. I want everyone to see that the point comes from the text, that I'm not preaching my own ideas, and then saying, thus saith the Lord. So it's very dangerous. We believe that when someone is preaching, it doesn't matter who it is, when we're preaching from the pulpit, preaching from God's word, thus saith the Lord. That, is, that has the power to bind our consciences. So we want to make sure that it comes only from this word. What I have to say, my thoughts don't bind your conscience. They're not worth even hearing. It's only this, and that's what, that's what it comes from. So this is our second application. We have to guard ourselves by the word and ask the question, what does the word tell me? Not what I want it to say. That's our second application. Our final application <clears throat> from this text is, is really the test that we can do. The test of our knowledge. It's the pride versus the love test of our knowledge. And the test is simple. As we grow in knowledge, and we should grow in knowledge. Every Christian should grow in knowledge. We should grow in our knowledge of the things of God. As we read through scripture, as we study theology, as we understand this, as we increase in spiritual disciplines, which we should do, prayer, worship, service, we need to ask ourselves, is this growth puffing me up? Is it leading me to spiritual pride? Is it leading me to a feeling of superiority over other Christians? Wow, I, I pray an hour a day. I've read through the entire Bible. Aren't I great? Is it, is it making us feel like we are a super Christian? That we're hot stuff? Do we expect everyone to listen to us? Do we find that we do more talking than listening? Do we think that we have nothing that we can learn from others? That, that, that there's no reason for me to go to church because I know more than all those at church. No reason for me to, to go to a Bible study because I know everything I need to do. No reason to go to Sunday school. I'm beyond all that. I heard, I heard from an old 
seminary professor, a very godly man. He said one of the most edifying sermons that he had ever heard in his entire life was preached by a seminary student, was preached by a student. And this this professor realized the Holy Spirit can use humble means that he could learn even from one of his students. And he can be blessed from one of his students. So if your knowledge leads to being puffed up, it's an incomplete knowledge. You may know many facts, but what you did is you missed the essence of Christianity. You have strained out the net and you swallowed the camel. Conversely, as you have a greater encounter with the things of God, as you grow in width and length and depth of your spiritual understanding, and you grow in your spiritual disciplines, are you filled with an overwhelming love for God and awe of God? Are you filled with a profound gratitude? And do you understand your utter unworthiness of the blessings that are being revealed to you? Rather than feeling superior, superior to other Christians, do you have a desire to love other Christians, to serve other Christians? In your growth, do you gain a greater appreciation, a greater thankfulness of others, of the gifting that you see in others? Do you truly value others? And are you like that old seminary professor that you realize you can learn from every single Christian? You can learn from everyone. The Holy Spirit often will say the most profound things through the humblest means. I remember when we lived in Blacksburg, we were in a Bible study with some really knowledgeable Christians, people who, who studied the Bible, knew it well, would walk with the Lord. And there was this one lady in, in the Bible study who, <clears throat> she, was, she was limited in her mental abilities. She, she, she was able to work and, and live on her own, but she probably had the understanding of, of probably someone in a grade school, maybe a fourth, fifth grade level. But she had a sweetness and, and an innocence about her. And sometimes God gave her insights that, other of us who are well, who are, who are more trained, missed. And I can truly say that I was blessed by her participation in the Bible study. And this list, last point, I think, is really applicable for us in our tradition. Because I believe we rightly handle the Word of God. I think we have a, a, a respect for our theological heritage. But there's a danger. There's a danger that all this knowledge will puff us up rather than fill us with love and build us up. So we need to be on guard. We need to be praying. We need to be looking. We need to constantly check ourselves. We need to constantly apply the love test to ourselves as we grow. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for this chapter. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have gifted so many of us here, giving us insights into your word. And I pray, Father, that all these insights that you give us will never puff us up, will never make us proud, but will actually show us how little we know, show us how far we have to come. We'll increase our love for you, for your grace that you have shown for us, increase our appreciation for our brothers and sisters, and increase our love for them. We know, Lord, that it is knowledge puffs up, but love does build up. So fill us with that love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.